Hello, and welcome to MTC Audio Lab, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. MTC Audio Lab is theatre for your ears, bringing great dramatic texts to life with some of your favourite stage actors. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Bunwarung, the first peoples of country on which these recordings took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. In this first series, you'll hear great Australian speeches performed by some great Australian actors. Directed by MTC Associate Director Petra Khalif, these recordings give voice and recognition to important speeches and texts from our history. You'll hear an introduction to the speeches by Petra at the beginning of the episode. Ned Kelly dictated a letter which was sent to Victorian parliamentarian Donald Cameron seeking justice for allegations of criminal activity. It was sent sometime in December 1878. This is the Cameron letter, read by Greg Stone. Sir, take no offence if I take the opportunity wherein I wish to state a few remarks concerning the case of Trooper Fitzpatrick against Mrs Kelly, W Skillen and W Williamson and to state the facts of the case to you. It seems to me impossible to get any justice without I make a statement to someone that will take notice of it as it is of no use in me complaining about anything that the police may choose to say or swear against me, and the public, in their ignorance and blindness, will undoubtedly back them up to their utmost. No doubt I am now placed in very peculiar circumstances, and you might blame me for it, but if you knew me, how I've been wronged and persecuted, you would say I cannot be blamed. In April last... An information was, which must have come under your notice, sworn against me for shooting Trooper Fitzpatrick, which was false. And my mother, with an infant baby and brother-in-law and another neighbour, were taken for aiding and abetting and attempting to murder him, a charge for which they are as purely innocent as the child unborn. During my stay on the King River... I run into a wild bull, which I gave to literature, who afterwards sold him to Carr, and he killed him for some beef. Sometime afterwards, I was told I was blamed for stealing this bull from Witty. I asked Witty on Mohu Racecourse why he blamed me for stealing his bull, and he said that he'd found the bull, and he never blamed me for stealing it. He said it was Farrell who told him I stole the bull. Sometime afterwards, I heard again I was blamed for stealing a mob of calves from Witty and Farrell, which I never had anything to do with. And along with this and the other talk, I began to think they wanted something to talk about. Witty and Burns, not being satisfied with all the picked land on King River and Boggy Creek, paid heavy rent for all the open ground so as a poor man could not keep his stock and impounded every beast they could catch, even off government roads. If a poor man happened to leave his horse or a bit of potty calf outside his paddock, it would be impounded. Along with all this sort of work, Farrell, the policeman, stole a horse from George King, my stepfather, and had him in Witty and Jeffrey's paddock until he left the force. And this was the cause of me and my stepfather, George King, stealing Witty's horses and selling them to Baumgarten and those other men. The brand was altered by me and George King, and the horses were sold as straight. Any man requiring horses would have bought them the same as these men and would have been potted the same. 
I consider Witty ought to do something towards the release of those innocent men, otherwise there will be a collision between me and him, as I can to his satisfaction prove I took Jay Welsh's black mare and the rest of the horses, I sold them afterwards at Benalla, and left Victoria as I wished to see certain parts of the country. Very shortly afterwards, there was a warrant for me, and as I since hear, they searched the 11 mile and every other place in the district for me. The trooper rode into my house and Dan came out. He asked Dan to go to Greta with him. Dan asked him what for, and he said he had a warrant for him for stealing Witty's horses. They both went inside and Dan was having something to eat. The trooper was impatient and Mrs Kelly asked him what he wanted Dan for. He said he had a warrant for him. Dan said, produce your warrant. And he said he had none. It was only a telegram from Chiltern. Mrs Kelly said that he need not go unless he liked without a warrant. She told the trooper he had no business on her premises without some authority besides his word. He pulled out his revolver and said he would blow her brains out if she interfered in the arrest. Mrs Kelly said that if Ned was here, he would ram the revolver down his throat. To frighten the trooper, Dan said, oh, Ned is coming now. The trooper looked around to see if it was true. Dan dropped the knife and fork, which showed he had no murderous intent, clapped Heenan's hug on him, took his revolver and threw him and part of the door outside and kept him there until Skillion and Ryan came with horses, which Dan sold that night. The trooper left and invented some scheme to say he got shot where any man can see it was impossible for him to have been shot. He told Dan to clear out that Sergeant Steele or Detective Brown would be there before morning. The next day, Skillion, Williamson, Mrs Kelly with an infant were taken and thrown into prison and were six months awaiting trial with no bail allowed and was convicted on the evidence of the meanest man that ever the sun shone on. I've been told by police that he's hardly ever sober. Also, between him and his father, they sold his sister to a Chinaman. I heard that I was outlawed and a £100 reward for me in Victoria and also hundreds of charges of horse stealing was against me besides shooting a trooper. I heard how the police used to be blowing that they would shoot me first and then cry surrender. How they used to come to the house when there was no one there but women and Superintendent Smith used to say, See all the men I have today? I will have as many more tomorrow and blow him into pieces as small as the paper that is in our guns. They used to repeatedly rush into the house, revolver in hand, and upset milk dishes, empty the flour out onto the floor, break tins of eggs, throw the mat out of the cask on the floor, and dirty and destroy all the provisions, which can be proved, and shove the girls in front of them into rooms like dogs, and abuse them and insult them. Detective Ward and Constable Hayes took out their revolvers and threatened to shoot the girls and children whilst Mrs Skillion was absent. The greatest murderers and ruffians would not be guilty of such an action. This sort of cruelty and disgraceful conduct to my brothers and sisters who had no protection certainly made my blood boil, as I don't think there is a man born could have the patience to suffer what I did. They were not satisfied with frightening and insulting my sisters night and day and destroying their provisions and lagging my mother with an infant baby and those innocent men, but should follow me and my brother, who was innocent of having anything to do with those stolen horses, into the wilds where he had been quietly digging and doing well, neither molesting or interfering with anyone. 
I was not there long when I came on the track of police horses between Tabletop and the bogs and crossed them and went to Emu Swamp. And returning home, I came on more police tracks making for our camp. I told my mates and me and my brother went out next morning and found police camped at the Shingle Hut with long firearms. As we had nothing but a gun and a rifle, if they came on us at our work or camp, we had no chance, only to die like dogs. We approached the spring as close as we could get to the camp, the intervening space being clear. We saw two men at the log. They got up, one took a double barrel fowling piece and one drove the horses down and hobbled them against the tent. We thought there were more men in the tent, these being on sentry. We could have shot these two men without speaking, but not wishing to take life, we waited. McIntyre laid the gun against the stump and Lonigan sat on the log. I advanced, my brother Dan keeping McIntyre covered. I called on them to throw up their hands. McIntyre obeyed and never attempted to reach for his gun and revolver. Lonigan ran to a battery of logs and put his head up to take aim at me when I shot him, or he would have shot me, as I knew well. I asked, who was in the tent? McIntyre replied, no one. I approached the camp and took possession of their revolvers and fowling piece, which I loaded with bullets instead of shot. I told McIntyre I did not want to shoot him or any man that would surrender. My brother went back to the spring and I stopped at the log with McIntyre. Kennedy and Scanlon came up. McIntyre said he would get them to surrender if I spared their lives as well as his. I said I did not know either of him, Scanlon or Kennedy, and had nothing up against them and would not shoot any of them if they gave up their firearms and promised to leave the force as it was the meanest billet in the world. They are worse than cold-blooded murderers and hangmen. He said he was sure they would never follow me anymore. I gave him my word I would give him a chance. McIntyre went up to Kennedy, Scanlon being behind with a rifle and revolver. I called on them to throw up their hands. Scanlon slewed his horse round to gallop away, but turned again and as quick as thought fired at me with the rifle and was in the act of firing again when I shot him. Kennedy alighted on the offside of his horse and got behind a tree and opened hot fire. McIntyre got on Kennedy's horse and galloped away. I could have shot him if I chose, as he was right against me, but rather than break my word, I let him go. My brother advanced from the spring. Kennedy fired at him and ran, and he found neither of us were dead. I followed him. He got behind another tree and fired at me again. I shot him in the armpit as he was behind the tree. He dropped his revolver and ran again and slewed around. I fired with the gun again and shot him through the right chest, as I did not know that he had dropped his revolver and was turning to surrender. He could not live or I would have let him go. Had they been my own brothers, I could not help shooting them or else lie down and let them shoot me, which they would have done. I put his cloak over him and left him as honourable as I could, and if they were my own brothers... I could not be more sorry for them. With the exception of Lonigan, I did not begrudge him what bit of lead he got as he was the flashest, meanest man that I ever had any account against. This cannot be called willful murder for I was compelled to shoot them in my own defence or lie down like a cur and die. 
Certainly their wives and children are to be pitied, but those men came into the bush with the intention of shooting me down like a dog. And is my mother and her infant baby and my poor little brothers and sisters not to be pitied? More so, who has got no alternative only to put up with brutal and unmanly conduct of the police who have never had any relations or a mother or must have forgotten. The reports of bullets being fired into the bodies of the troopers after death is false and the coroner should be consulted. I have no intention of asking mercy for myself or any mortal man or apologising but wish to give timely warning that if my people do not get justice and those innocents released from prison and the police wear their uniform I shall be forced to seek revenge of everything of the human race for the future. I will not take innocent life if justice is given, but as the police are afraid or ashamed to wear their uniform, therefore every man's life is in danger. As I was outlawed without cause and cannot be no worse but have but once to die. If the public do not see justice done, I will seek revenge for the name and character which has been given to me and my relations while God gives me strength to pull a trigger. The witness which can prove Fitzpatrick's falsehood can be found by advertising. And if this is not done immediately, horrible disasters shall follow. Fitzpatrick shall be the cause of greater slaughter to the rising generation than St. Patrick was to the snakes and toads of Ireland. Had I robbed, plundered, ravished and murdered everything I met, my character could not be painted blacker than it is at present. Thank God my conscience is as clear as the snow in Peru. By concluding, as I have no more paper unless I rob for it, if I get justice, I will cry a go, for I need no lead or powder to avenge my cause, and if words be louder, I will oppose your laws. With no offence, remember your railroads, and a sweet goodbye from Edward Kelly, Enforced Outlaw. Great Australian Speeches was directed by Petra Khalid, with performances by Sharina Clanton, Mark Cole-Smith, Mark Downey, Greg Stone, Leonie Wyman, and Isabella Yenner. Theme music by Clements Williams. Sound design and engineering by Nick Woolen. Produced by the team at MTC. Enjoyed this episode? To hear more theatrical tales, subscribe to MTC Audio Lab or learn more by heading to mtc.com.au.